You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. Commute, the podcast. Three topics, under 20 minutes. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute... For years, we were told that we needed to drink milk to build up strong bones, but was there ever any truth to that? The Atari video game, based on the movie E.T., was so bad that every existing copy got secretly dumped into a landfill in the middle of the night. And no, I'm not making that up. Dave, between the two of us, which of us do you think can tie the most knots? Well, you were an Eagle Scout, so I guess you. It is me, and you'll hear from this former Boy Scout about whether or not the Boy Scouts can survive financial ruin and whether or not they deserve to. You hear from this Boy Scout. <laughs> All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, growing up, what was your relationship like with milk? Did your parents make you drink it? Did you like it? Uh, Were you thinking that you would become the star of the basketball team if you had a lot of it? Where were you at? Loved milk, um, but growing up, I thought that milk only existed in skim form because my parents never bought 2%. And don't even... Don't even think about whole milk. They definitely didn't buy whole milk. They also just bought Scott single ply toilet paper. <laughs> There's a lot of a uh, lot of things there to talk about that we don't have time for, but uh, maybe we'll get to later. <laughs> uh, and you know, I started thinking about milk a lot more recently after I saw a tweet a few weeks ago from an account on Twitter, uh, Ben Meckler. He said this quote. Gen Z will never understand growing up with parents who basically poured a gallon of milk into your body with a funnel every day because Big Milk told them that if we didn't drink enough, our bones would go soft and we'd turn into pudding people and get kidnapped at the mall. Okay, so that tweet then led me to a book called Got Milked by Alyssa Hamilton, which kind of told this story of like, uh, why did we drink milk and why do we drink it? Because we don't really need to drink it, right? And so I'll kind of Walk, walk you through a little bit of that history because I think it's super interesting. And what is true about milk is that it has been and it still is marketed as an essential part of the balanced diet, one that literally has its own space on the food pyramid, if you remember the food pyramid. Uh, milk posters were in our doctor's offices growing up. Milk is put on our school lunch trays. And, and most of the time, the messaging includes that milk is full of calcium, which is essential to the growth of strong and healthy bones. But where did this messaging come from? And is there any truth to it. Is cow's milk really as essential to human development as we've been told? So to start, let's go back to the source of this marketing campaign. Uh, During World War I, America had a dairy problem. The government needed farmers to produce processed dairy products to send to soldiers overseas, but farmers were not getting paid enough to produce it. So to address the problem, the U.S. government created programs uh, to get milk into the school systems to artificially create dairy demand, thereby driving up production. So as the war came came to a close, and as the U.S. government found the milk supply still pouring in, the supply needed a destination. And then after a dairy farmer's strike in the 1930s to demand a fair price for milk, uh, the government appeased dairy farmers by creating several programs to increase consumption, killing two birds with one stone. Uh, The first of these programs was a 1940 federal milk program for schools and federally subsidized milk advertising under the WPA, under the Roosevelt administration. Uh, And in 1946, 
1946, President Truman passed the National School Lunch Act, which mandated that each lunch include between one and a half to two pints of whole milk. And in essence, since, you know, adults weren't really buying milk, the government solution was to force it onto children. And to this day, Dave, children who participate in the National School Lunch Program, uh, which offers like free and low cost lunches to students, uh, are required to take a carton of dairy milk. Uh, the Carter administration funneled over $2 billion into the milk advertising in the 70s, and it went from there. Uh, the propaganda campaign began pushing it into the public by beating the drum that it was essential to health. And women were moving into the cities in the 1950s to enter the workforce uh, in bigger numbers than they ever had before. And cow's milk was pushed as an easy way to supplement breast milk for nutrition for babies, for women who were not home as much as usual. And these campaigns led to pro-athletes on posters in schools with milk mustaches and the iconic slogan got milk let me say this really quick so i've had this conversation actually (laughs) more than than you would imagine uh over the last couple of years when i was in school we got milk in bags okay it wasn't in cartons it was in bags so you had a little yellow straw like a capri sun straw and you poked it through the bag people find that Fascinating. I thought everybody got milk in bags. I'm just trying to get a visual. Like, was it like a Ziploc bag and they just no, like poured milk like a, into it, a, it? It was a pouch. It was a pouch of milk. It was normal. It's not weird. I mean, we had the cartons like everybody else. I don't know what you guys were doing up in the northern part of the state. You can't hide money, man. Dave, studies have actually shown that consuming large quantities of dairy products gives you higher risk of bone fracture, higher risk of prostate cancer and heart <laughs> no. disease, no, higher no, no, rates no, no. of obesity and higher cholesterol. And even the dairy industry today recognizes and admits that milk should not hold the special status that has been forced upon it. The National Dairy Council recognizes that kale, broccoli, and bok choy all have higher rates of calcium than milk. And in fact, Dave, two tablespoons of ground basil contain the same amount of calcium as a glass of milk. The bottom line is that the dairy industry, it's an industry like any other. It exists to make a profit. The global dairy market was valued, get this, at 718.9 billion US dollars in 2019, and by the year 2024, we'll pass 1 trillion dollars. Imagine that email to parents in the school system. Attention parents, we are replacing Placing your child's milk with bok choy. So, Jay, for the second consecutive week, we have a listener-submitted topic suggestion. So, shout out to Don Scalise for this topic suggestion. Don gave us a great one. Jay, today we are going to talk about what is considered to be the worst video game of all time. A video game based on the movie E.T. made for the Atari gaming system in the early 1980s. And we're going to discuss how Atari ended up literally taking every available copy of the game and burying them in a New Mexico landfill. So Jay, to get us started, two questions for you. Number one, have you ever played an Atari? I, I know we're, it's, it was a little before our time. And number two, have you ever seen the movie E.T.? Uh, born in 89, so didn't really, uh, wasn't really born in the right era for the Atari, so missed that boat. And 
yeah, I saw E.T., but then I didn't want to see it anymore because E.T., like, it was kind of freaky to me a little bit, like, just the the puppet and just the way he looked, and so I just wasn't super into it. Well, he wasn't a puppet. He was an actual alien. You, of all people, I think, would appreciate it. I knew you were going to say something about that, but, like, I don't know. It's just, look at him now. Like, go back and look at it now, and you'll see what I'm saying. It's great. uh, No, the, 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 uh, the animatronics are incredible. You and my wife are the same, though. Like, you don't appreciate good cinema. <laughs> so, Jay, the movie E.T. came out in 1982 and is, despite what you say, a beloved blockbuster film. Directed by the legendary Steven Spielberg, the film focuses on E.T., the alien, his crash landing on Earth, and how a boy named Elliot and his family ultimately helps E.T. build a phone mechanism, the movie's catchphrase was E.T. Phone Home, to call his alien friends to come pick him up. Jay, this was the first major motion picture credited to actress Drew Barrymore, even though I prefer the 1986 smash hit Babes in Toyland, and it put Reese Pieces candy on the map, but that's a topic for another show. So back to the worst video game of all time and its ultimate semi-secret burial. So to understand the game, you first have to understand its creator, Howard Scott Warshaw. Warshaw was a tech genius with a dream of doing big things at a young age. In 2015, he told NPR, quote, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be older. And then when I was older, I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to get out and I wanted to engage life. Jay, he wanted to get through school as fast as possible, make a quick and tidy fortune in business, and then retire by the age of 30. Well, already a somewhat successful computer engineer in his early 20s, Warshaw was hired in 1981 by a video game startup named Atari to design video games. After quickly proving himself with games that seemed more sophisticated than the early Atari releases like the legendary Pong, Warshaw was given the task of creating the first ever video game based on a movie, the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark video game for the Atari, also a Spielberg movie. After 10 months, the Indiana Jones game was completed, and it was a smashing success. So much so that Spielberg requested that Warshaw make the next video game based on a successful movie, E.T. But Jay, contract negotiations by Atari and Spielberg lasted so long by the time Warshaw was given the green light to start building the game, he had five weeks to build the game from... Let me say that again. He had five weeks to build the game from scratch and get it ready for the Christmas season of 1982. So Warshaw got to work. In just 36 hours, he had created the concept for the game, a basic plot where players went around collecting pieces to build E.T.'s alien phone and developed a world that wrapped around itself. Now, this was a, a video game environment and a concept not ever seen before at this point in the history of video games. And, of course, Atari was the first video game system. The world was so complicated that he created for E.T. and unique in comparison to games currently on the market in the early 80s, it was literally impossible to play. Players would move only to be sent back to the starting point of the game without any explanation. I think one NPR staffer put it best. It's the video game equivalent of purgatory. (laughs) 
<laughs> and with that, Atari started to fall apart as a company and did what any panicked company would do. I think you can agree, Jay. They tried to secretly throw the game away. As for the legendary Atari Gaming Dump, a 2014 discovery by gaming media company Fuel Industries found at least some of the rumored one million dumped copies of the game in a landfill in New Mexico. As for Warshaw, the game's creator, well, he took a brand new career path after this failure and decided to become a therapist. After watching his own life crumble after E.T. and noticing the despair around him in the industry, he committed his life to help others like himself. His practice, the appropriately named Silicon Valley Therapist, currently operates in the Silicon Valley. You know, uh, as you started talking about this, it came back to me. There's a documentary on Netflix called High Score. It's a docuseries. I think it's like four episodes, and there's a segment on this uh, where they interview the creator of the game. Uh, So go watch that. If this was a story that piqued your interest, go look that up, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So, Dave, one of the things that I think is uh, very true about us is that when we meet people and we're together, you like to tell uh, people that we meet things about me sometimes more than I like to tell them. So the biggest one of these that I'm thinking of is you've probably told more people than me in my life that I'm an Eagle Scout. Yeah, I love telling people that you're an, you're an Eagle Scout. Now, I only know a couple <laughs> of Eagle Scouts. My cousins are Eagle Scouts. My father-in-law is an Eagle Scout. And you're an Eagle Scout. But it somehow always comes up in the conversation. Like maybe we're talking about somebody wanting to take a backpacking trip this summer. And I say, well, <laughs> I mean, you should ask Jay for some advice. He's yeah, an Eagle Scout. You've worked it into like some truly incredible... <laughs> like tight corners uh, to just find like you're looking for you're looking for a way to bring it up you know it's like when you just know someone's been sitting on something you know that's 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 because we know that you have survived the night in the woods without food or toilet (laughs) well you know boy scouts for me uh just kind of to be honest was a really really positive experience like i loved it when i was in it i had a really strong just like group of people that i was with a lot of friendships that i still have to this day and uh, my dad was in it with me and so it was like a cool like connection that we had to be able to do stuff and so when I think about it, uh, it's all positive, uh, but the the organization's not in a good place right now, uh, and it's probably in a place that it's not even going to be able to survive, uh, really, to be honest, unless it makes some major, major changes. Uh, in February of last year, Dave, I don't know if you if you know this, it didn't make a lot of like big news, but the Boy Scouts of America actually filed for bankruptcy. Uh, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking like, oh, it probably like they got hit by COVID, but this was in February, so this was before COVID really hit our world, and it was really a defensive reaction move to mounting lawsuits against the organization stemming from their handling of thousands and thousands of cases of sexual assault against boys throughout its history. And for many years, these sort of cases were kind of handled quietly away from the courtroom. Most historians will agree that since its founding in 1910, the organization has had a sexual abuse problem. But in most cases, files were kept in the dark and victims were paid for their silence and shamed into the quiet 
quiet. That all changed in 2010. There was a court uh, case in Portland, Oregon, ordered uh, the Boy Scouts to pay $1.4 million to a man who was abused by a scout leader in the 1980s. And during that trial, there were about a thousand files that were introduced as evidence that were, quote, called the red flag files. And the jury and the lawyers were the only ones that were allowed to see them. Uh, But the Boy Scouts at the time denied any allegations uh, of negligence. But in 2012, uh, they were forced to make all of those files public. And those were thousands of pages of documentation. And the Portland case just brought this avalanche uh, onto the Boy Scouts, along with a cascade of lawsuits over individual abuse claims. Several former scouts are suing the organization for access to all of the files, uh, which they say contain the names of nearly 8,000 men who were abused as boys. Last year, to raise money, uh, the Boy Scouts actually mortgaged Philmont, which is like the major camp uh that the the boy scouts own i remember like that being like the big deal like if you got to go to philmont it was like the most amazing thing that you could do in boy scouts or whatever so the fact that they had to mortgage that just kind of says it all and for me dave it's all of this is like really hard to square because I had an overwhelmingly positive experience, but ultimately what I've had to come to grips with is that while I had men in my life through scouting that were positive role models and taught me a lot, you know, other boys just like me in the same exact position found themselves violated. Can we lay the entirety of the blame for this at the feet of the offenders? And I don't think we can. I think the organization itself that empowered and protected this behavior deserves to face hard questions. In the years since, the Boy Scouts have set up funds for victims and worked to change these ancient protocols of reporting abuse. But can the organization win back public trust? And ultimately, I think we have to ask the question of whether or not we should even allow them to. Is it time for the Boy Scouts to end? Well, for one, I'm not uh, the one to answer that question, but I think it is a conversation worth having. So, Jay, this while this is an important story to tell, it's a bit of a downer. So I, I'm going to bring us up here by telling my two stories about my involvement with Boy Scouts. So I was in Boy Scouts for exactly one year. I made it through uh, the first year of Cub Scouts. Okay, uh, well, my Cub, two well mem- I'll stop you there. I mean, Cub Scouts is uh, not Boy Scouts, it's but go the, ahead. It's the first level of Boy Scouts, but whatever. Um, so my first story is uh, one of my earliest memories was when I was in first grade. I'm in Cub Scouts. The governor's wife came to visit our elementary school. Uh, I'm wearing my Cub Scouts uh, sweatshirt. It's white. We had pizza for lunch. She's shaking hands with all the student leaders from our class. I was one. She gets to me and she says, oh, it looks like you enjoyed lunch because I had (laughs) grease all over my sweatshirt. The second story is why I quit Cub Scouts, which is I lost in the rain gutter regatta, which is uh, you build a little boat and it's got a sail and you blow it and it goes down a rain gutter to a girl. Um, the, the Scoutmaster's daughter, who should have been in Brownies or Girl Scouts at the time, was in Boy Scouts. This is in the early 90s. Uh, and she beat me and I quit. Uh, I have since learned to really love and appreciate women. But when I was seven, it was different. <laughs> I wonder if there's an alternate timeline out there where you win that boat race and you make it all the way like you're an Eagle Scout in that alternate timeline. Like that was just all it took. That was your villain origin story. Oh, you enjoyed lunch. I'll never forget it. And that's it. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode. And I'll tell you what, Jay does represent the Boy Scouts in a very positive way. Jay, you are a great Eagle Scout. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And check us out on social or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my man Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Have a great week. We will see you next Monday.